You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, we're turning again to the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Uh, We've been studying these first three chapters for a number of weeks now, and uh, very central Uh, It seems to me to understanding what it means uh, to be alive, actually, from a biblical point of view, are so essential to help us in the modern world uh, understand the jigsaw puzzle pieces of life. Um, And one of the blessings of uh, knowing the Lord and knowing these chapters in His Word is that it sets our lives by faith in a context which God himself has provided for us. And because we're able to look at life and the world with this biblical world and life view, uh, we're able to see that so many people around us live with the jigsaw puzzle pieces spread around them as a kind of mystery. Uh, They don't understand why they're here, They have to make their own purpose for their own life. They see family dysfunction all around them and have no idea where it came from. And uh, they don't have the social science to be able to prognosticate where it is going to lead. And one of the benefits that we find as Christians from these particular chapters is it tells us where we came from, tells us what we were created for, tells us how things have gone wrong, tells us what happens as a result, and also tells us that there is hope for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've reached the point where Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 have taken the fruit of the forbidden tree and uh, as we read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7 as a result the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Uh, You would think uh, if you were naked you would realize you were naked. So the emphasis here lies in the fact that uh, in a sense they they were completely unself-conscious of their nakedness. Uh, They lived in such uh, experience of living for God and living for one another, however briefly, that reflections on self were incidental to life because they tasted the joy of being taken up with the other, the other in heaven and the other on earth. And it is an interesting thing to uh, see in our own lives that we, we, we only have the slightest echoes of that in our own lives. We're profoundly self-conscious people. And we know only intimations of what this must have been like to be so absorbed in another that uh, you lose your self-consciousness. That was what marriage was actually for. 
That's what the relationship that they had with the Lord did. So it didn't surprise us that when society turns away from this, it gets filled with counselors and therapists and psychiatrists and psychologists who are all trying to help people get in touch nowadays with themselves. And uh, they don't seem to take into account that if you're still trying to get in touch with yourself, you must actually be lost, which, strangely enough, is the Bible's message. So let's read on in Genesis 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid and was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl in your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will crush his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. The message of Genesis 1 through 3 And in some ways, the message of the whole Bible can be summarized in two statements with a deep logical connection. Two statements with a deep logical connection. The first statement is this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. First question and answer of the Shorter Catechism. The second sentence is like unto the first. God's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the piece of logic is this. These two sentences are simply two sides of the same coin. God's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The other side of that coin 
is that man, who has been created by God, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the focus of the attack of the serpent was to confuse the man and the woman about the integration of these two sentences. So that if God's chief end, the serpent whispered, if God's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, then God cannot want man to have God as his chief end in order that he may also enjoy him forever. And the subtlety of the serpent's craft was to whisper, first of all, to the woman, and the woman, you remember, led the man into the same situation of taking the forbidden fruit. The, the serpent's goal was to persuade them that God wanted the best for God and therefore didn't want the best for them. It's so important for us to understand that that is the focus of the serpent's activity. If God is seeking His glory, He cannot possibly be wanting your joy. And so these two statements, God's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and thus to find joy forever. Those two statements were dislocated from one another and set in antithesis and antagonism against each other. First of all, in the mind of the woman who confesses in Genesis 3 that she was deceived by the subtlety of the serpent. And then with his eyes opened, Adam chose the same position as the serpent. If God wants his glory, then he cannot possibly want my joy. And in a sense, that is, the, that is the ultimate explanation of why the world is in the condition it's in this evening. Because as Paul says in Romans 1, 23 and 25, men and women, as he's really, he has this passage in the background of that tremendously important section in Romans. And he says, here is the situation. He says, men and women exchanged the glory of God for creatures and exchanged the truth about God for the lie. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, used to speak about the world being a place where someone had come in and confused all the price tags so that the things that were valuable were sold cheaply, and the things that were cheap were regarded as having immense value. And it's a wonderful, simple clue to understanding what the message of the Bible is from this point onwards right through to the end, is that the serpent persuaded the man and the woman to make that exchange. And what the gospel does is to 
reverse that exchange. The result being that we begin to rejoice in the fact that God's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy God forever because we've learned that our chief end, this is what we were made for as fish were made to swim and birds were made to fly. Our freedom, our delight, our joy lies in this, that we were made for the privilege, the delight of glorifying God and therefore learning what it means to enjoy God forever. And I want us just this evening, as we come to the Lord's table, especially at the end of the service, to notice how these exchanges have been made. God has shown himself to be the creator, and we are the creatures. But instead, we want to create our own lives. We want to be God, as the philosopher Nietzsche said, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? And uh, God has made a difference between himself as creator and us as creatures, and we try to destroy that difference. And then God has made man as his image. That is to say, the difference between Humans and the animal world are that humans are made as the image of God and therefore are radically different from the animal world, no matter what we may share with them, because we are all made from the dust of the earth. And what is characteristic of our modern world? It is that when we lose sight of the one whose image we are, we regard ourselves as animals. We say the animals do it, why shouldn't we do it? And the result is that we cheapen life. At the beginning, we cheapen life by destroying it. And so it shouldn't surprise us in our modern world that we will again cheapen life. And interestingly, we will cheapen suffering we will say suffering needs to be cheapened. People should not suffer. Turn our eyes to the glories that God can create in those who suffer. And then, of course, as, uh, and this is where Romans 1 ends, God made man as his image, creator, creature. Man, not animal. Male and female, different. How striking we would come to this chapter this weekend when the rainbow flag flies over Whitehall and the Scottish office in London to celebrate the legal destruction of the difference that God has created between man and woman. Since the telegraph was mentioned this morning, I might as well mention the Times. The Times on a Saturday has a column about people who are going to get married. Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, little piece on his daughter getting married. And underneath, a lesbian marriage that may well, for I know, taken place this weekend uh, between two women who will be known as Mrs. and Mrs. Isn't that interesting? Mrs. and Mrs. 
What's the point? It is the obliteration of the distinctions that God has made. And how fascinating that Romans chapter 1 actually ends by saying how striking this is. Has Prime Minister Cameron, who so rejoices in marriage, this isn't a political statement incidentally, who so rejoices in marriage that he wants everyone to be married, does he not know that Romans chapter 1 ends by saying that those who engage in obliterating these distinctions end up approving those who want to obliterate them? Of course, Prime Minister Cameron doesn't know that's how Romans 1 ends. And all of this, that entail, all of this is, as it were, the sea coming in on the cliff on top of which our Western civilization has been perched for the last 250 years. And uh, imperceptibly, the sea has been coming in, rotting the foundations. You know, you, you look at some of these pictures you see on television, you say to yourself, why are these idiots living in that house? It's on the edge of a cliff. Because they never thought the sea would erode the foundations of the cliff. That's why they're still living there. And... Uh, when we have biblical lenses in our spectacles, actually, it, it doesn't at all surprise us that the rainbow flag would be flying over Whitehall. When the house on the cliff collapses, it happens very quickly. And what we have seen in recent years is the, is the sea coming in as it's been coming in in the rejection of God, in the rejection of the divine image, in the rejection of all differences, in what uh, my friend Peter Jones calls the one-ism of modern life that's so fascinatingly Eastern in origin. Everything is one. And all the God-given distinctions are obliterated shouldn't surprise us at all. The great thing is, as uh, we've already heard today, we're not pessimistic about this. Why? Why in our head, not in the sand, saying, oh, this is terrible, this is awful, because we have the Word of God in our hands. And so we're not surprised that it happens. And it begins here in the Garden of Eden in a series of exchanges that take place in this first couple that in a sense set the trajectory for the exchange that men and women make in every age, choosing the lie about God rather than the truth. And the lie is this. The last thing in the world you would ever want to do if you wanted joy and peace and purpose and freedom and fulfillment and happiness and stability and a future, the last thing in the world you would want to do would be to give your life over to this God and say, I want to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. 
And yet you see at the end of the day, the Scriptures are teaching us right from the beginning to the end. That is the way of joy. If you're made for that, there is no other way of freedom. There is no other way of joy. Now notice that uh, this couple make a threefold exchange. First of all, in relationship to themselves, they exchange innocence for guilt and shame. This very striking thing happens that's described in terms of their original nakedness. And presumably it was relatively warm in the Garden of Eden. And here they are, like, they are like little children in, uh, in a hot day in the summer, paddling in the sea. They are so completely integrated in themselves, so at home with themselves, so natural, so delighted to be the image of God, friends of God, friends of one another, that uh, they have no consciousness of self that would jar. It's very difficult for us to understand. You get so used to being tired, don't you? You know, when you get older, you get so used to being tired. You think that's normal. And then you remember those days when you were young, when things went on in your brain, and apparently without effort, your body simply did them. Um, and then maybe when you were about 40, you, you got ill for the first time. And suddenly you realized that your, your mind was in the same place, but your body didn't seem to be connected in the same way. And you felt this, that's odd. You know, and there is this, there is this sense of disintegration, and at least in my experience, as I go by, the bad news is it just gets worse and worse. <laughs> And worse and worse. And the odd thing is that your mind can still be fresh, but uh, you're kind of out of joint. I think that's, that's what's happened to us as people. You know, sometimes you meet people. I sometimes have met people and said to close friends, you know, I just love to be able to take him to pieces and put him back again properly. You know, meet people, I mean, some people who are, who are, you know, they're just like that. You think, somehow or another, something went wrong here in the factory. I mean, in terms of personality, they're not at ease with you or with themselves or with God. And all of this is really what, what begins to take place here. And the reason, of course, is because a sense I don't think at this stage they quite appreciated what was happening. But they, they obviously had some sense of shame. Now you see, self-forgetfulness, being wholly taken up with the Lord and with another, that, there's, no sh- there's no room for shame there. Perfect love casts out Fear, says the New Testament. Fear in the sense of shame. And uh, this disintegration begins to take place. That's actually our, our basic problem, isn't it? It's not just that we're out of sorts with the world. 
it's that we're out of sorts with ourselves. And they, had, they, they caught a taste of this, a sense of this. And their instinct was to cover themselves up. It's interesting how we do these things. You know, what difference does covering yourself up make to shame or to guilt? But we use these artificial techniques, these coping mechanisms. Indeed, if you don't in a sinful world have these coping mechanisms, you're going to be hurt every day of the week, aren't you? And so they, they try to cover themselves externally as a substitute for the integration, the perfect integration they enjoyed with the Lord, with one another, but in this instance with themselves. So they could be wholly forgetful of themselves. Why can't we, why can't we be wholly forgetful of ourselves? Why do we, why do we just have kind of echoes moments of that often when somebody falls in love they they discover that for the very first time in their lives it's almost as though well this is what life was meant to be and it doesn't last i don't mean the love doesn't last but the falling doesn't last and so they have exchanged this beautiful sense of innocence for this awful sense of shame They've made another exchange, not now in their relationship with themselves, but now in their relationship with God, because they have exchanged fellowship with Him for a sense of alienation. And it happens immediately. God comes to them in the, in the, in the, in the cool part of the day, in the wind of the day, I think it is literally, and most of our translations, perhaps rightly, maybe not so rightly, understand that as the cool part of the day, when the, the breeze is flowing through the Garden of Eden, and instinctively they hear the sound of the Lord. And uh, they don't need to be told He is, he is coming. And they hide not just now, as it were, behind the fig leaves, but they, they hide behind the trees. They're like guilty little children. And uh, isn't it interesting? And you see this. You see this in yourself. You see this in others. Every time a person hides something about themselves, they're actually revealing something about themselves. That's an important thing to know as a Christian witness, actually. You always need to be asking this question. You know, you always need to be a little Christian detective as a witness. Everyone is hiding from God. So how is this person in particular? What tree is he hiding behind? What wood is she hiding behind? And uh, the narrative goes on in this very dramatic way. They're not only alienated from themselves, they are alienated from the Lord. And when He comes, isn't this what a tragedy this is, but how true this is. When the Lord comes, the instinct is to hide. You were made for Him. One of our grandchildren who will remain nameless just before we have several grandchildren, six of them. So you've a, 
Is that a six, one in six chance of guessing the right child around about Christmas time on one occasion, knowing that the Christmas presents were in the house, it said to Dorothy, let's be sneaky, Granny. <laughs> to which I think the reply was, knowing her as I know her, Granny doesn't do sneaky, darling. And uh, God doesn't do sneaky either. We're an, we, we're an open book to him. Isn't it amazing how we try and pull the wool over his eyes? I just, um, you know, Augustine said I've become a puzzle to myself. If Augustine had become a puzzle to myself, I'd become a complete mystery to myself. How is it that in my right mind I could ever think that there is anything I do, think, or say, plan, or long for that I can hide from him? And... Uh, they exchanged fellowship with him for alienation from him. You see, actually one of the things the serpent wanted to do was to stop them thinking logically. We need to understand that in the modern world. The non-Christian, Christianity, illogical, nonsense. No, no, no. The serpent sought to destroy their logical capacity. What could be more illogical than to think that you could hide from the creator of the universe? And yet they think that way. And he comes and he begins to probe. Now, why does he begin to probe? I mean, why would, why would this gracious God embarrass them? You know, come out, you know, this is like a game of hide and seek where the great God of the universe who sees everything and knows everything is calling them out of the woods. And in a sense, the situation is absolutely hysterical. They come out of the woods with their fig leaves on. It's laughable. Because they've lost all sense of logic, haven't they? And they've exchanged true logic. Why would you ever want to turn away from this God who had given you all this and himself to boot? It's the most illogical thing in the world. But you see, once they've swallowed that false logic, their logic becomes increasingly false and they think they can hide from him. And so he calls them out and this was very embarrassing. If they were ashamed when they saw they were naked, how do you think they felt when God called them out of the trees? Why does he do this? For the same reason that Jesus called out of the crowd the woman who had suffered from the issue of blood for 16 years. What an embarrassing situation and affliction for her to have. Among other things, it made her religiously unclean, but what a thing to suffer. And then she is healed by touching the hem of Jesus' garment. And then he embarrasses her by pointing her out in the crowd and getting her to step forward. Why does he do that? Because she needs to be wholly healed. And in this instance, she cannot be wholly healed without going through that embarrassment barrier of being brought into the presence of Jesus. That's what's happening here. 
He understands they need to be brought out to confess their sin. He understands that they need to be brought out and to feel their sense of shame. They need to understand their guilt. They need to confess their faults. Because only thus will they begin to taste the glorious relief of the pardon for sin that He wants to offer to them. Uh, But actually they, at this stage, certainly they don't want to do that. And a third exchange becomes obvious in His Word to them. So there is an exchange of innocence for shame. There is an exchange of fellowship for alienation. And then there is in their relationship to each other an exchange of intimacy for antagonism. God willing, we'll come to the serpent next week, but you see what happens. It's crystal clear, isn't it? What have you done, says the Lord to the man. And uh, he says, this woman you gave me, she gave me to eat. He's shifting the blame. And he comes to the woman. He says, now what's happening here? She says, this serpent the serpent you made, it deceived me. And you see now in their folly, they're, they're kind of, they're talking back to God. Their mouths have not yet been shut. Remember how Paul says in Romans 3, at the end of the day, what sets us up to see the beauty and glory of Christ in the gospel is that our mouths have been shut. We know that we are guilty before Him, but they're still protesting. And it leads to the most awful disintegration in their relationship, doesn't it? Um, They're not able to come to God together and say, Lord, we've sinned. Please forgive us. He's blaming her. She's passing the buck to somebody else, the serpent in this instance. And uh, we see how their relationship with one another begins to be destroyed because God points out to her that in fact she has listened to the voice of the serpent rather than to the voice of the husband that the Lord gave to her. And there's there's an alienation built in. No, I won't listen to what my husband said. I'll, I'll listen to what the serpent said. And the tragic result of that, it is that in relationship to her sacred office. Now, here is the sacred office for which God destined this woman, that through her there would be brought into the world beings who would last for all eternity. That is the sacred office of a mother to be the means by which God brings into being persons who will thereafter last for all eternity. And instead of that being anticipated joy, her pain is going to be increased. It's almost as though, it's almost as though childbirth is going to become a dark sacrament 
of her failure to be what God had designed her to be in close union and fellowship with her husband. And then on the other hand, with Adam, what is the word for Adam? Adam, uh, Adam's sacred task is to extend the garden to the ends of the earth and to take part in the conception of children who will share in that grand task and all the disciplines with which we are so familiar of extending the garden to the ends of the earth and uh, what will happen. The wilderness will begin to fight back against him instead of flowers, thorns, and thistles that he'll not be able to master. And then this awful word that's spoken to him, because of what you have done, you are actually going to become part of the wilderness that you were called to turn into the garden. He was made to have dominion over the earth. Isn't this interesting still today? We can send uh, uh, rockets to the moon. We can explore uh, the cosmos. And uh, every few weeks we discover something more about that cosmos. At the end of the day, we simply become part of the cosmos. And it's not stardust, it's earth dust. We are subjugated to the earth that we were called to subjugate for the glory of God. We exchange the truth about God for the lie. And so we exchange our dominion over the earth for becoming part of the earth. And all of this in the context of their alienation from one another. In Eve's case, she exchanged the voice of the husband who had been given to care for her for the voice of the serpent. And in Adam's case, he exchanged the voice of his wife for the voice of the Lord. I wonder in how many marriages that has happened, exchanging the voice of the Lord for the voice of your spouse. So in every way, there are these awful seeds of alienation from one another and this awful series of tragic exchanges. That's the word Paul uses twice to summarize Genesis 3. If you, if you put Paul's heading over Genesis 3, it is tragic exchange. But then if you think back to last Lord's Day morning and even this morning, 2 Corinthians 5, what is the key word in 2 Corinthians 5? It's the word reconciliation. Do you know what? Paul's word reconciliation has as its root the idea of making an exchange. Isn't that amazing? Here we have exchanged all of this for the glory of God. And at the heart of the gospel, God made him to be sin, although he himself knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the gospel, at its heart, there lies the exchange 
that cancels out the tragic exchange. When he comes and takes our sin, our guilt, our shame, when he himself in all likelihood is rendered naked on the cross, covered in the guilt and shame of our sin, banished from the presence of God. My God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer, because you're making the exchange, becoming sin for sinners, that they might become righteous in you. That's why it's so wonderful at the end of the Lord's Day, thinking of a passage like this and remembering our morning message, uh, to think of it like this. At the tree, the serpent said, take and eat and die. And at the table, the Lord Jesus says, take and eat and live. It's as profound as that. And thankfully, it's as simple as that too. I wonder if that exchange is real for you. As you see it in the bread and the wine, then for the first or for the thousand and first time, say, Lord, I have exchanged your glory for my shame. And now I want to exchange my shame for your glory. And I do so by coming in faith to your Son who made the exchange to bring me there. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace and glory of the gospel, for the dark story of the awful and tragic exchange in which we have all come to share. We come to you with our own shame that we have added to it. And we pray that you would draw us out with a sense of our own sinfulness and bring us to our Lord Jesus Christ in his saving graciousness so that as we have taken and eaten the forbidden fruit of sin, we may take and eat the offered fruit of the cross of Jesus Christ. Lead us, we pray, from the tree before which we fell in Adam to the tree by which we are restored and saved in Jesus Christ, that we may feast on true and living fruit. And this we pray in our Savior's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. 
Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.